I have a unique connection to the couple who is going to give us our service today. Uh, some of you may or may not know that for one reason or another, I have been called on to be the officiant, the officiant at uh, four uh, gay lesbian weddings in this church. And uh, that led uh, from time to time people to ask me to conduct uh, the more standard wedding ceremony since I'm not uh, ordained uh, in any way, uh, it would not in any way be a legal ceremony, but when Bill and Jen asked me to conduct their ceremony, it worked out because they had already been married by a justice of the peace. So it ha gave me the opportunity to be the efficient at a perhaps a more special wedding ceremony that was conducted on their property, which is on a lovely wooded tract of land with a pond right behind it as the setting for the ceremony itself over in East Texas. And I was honored to do that, and what I know about this couple is that they are indeed soulmates. Now, I'm not trying to put define for them how they would classify themselves, but they seem to be so perfectly suited. Uh, it probably does not go unnoticed that they are somewhat dissimilar in age, uh, but they are not dissimilar in uh, intellect, nor in the pursuit of goodness. And those are two things that I think uh, probably are the essence of them being soulmates. Normally when I'm giving an introduction, I will get a bio and uh, I will simply scan through it and hit the high points. But the last time I introduced them, I noticed that the intro they gave me was so perfect that I had to read the thing word for word. I couldn't figure out anything to leave out. They've done that to me again. So please accept my apologies. I'm going to be caught reading here uh, a little bit of their introduction. Bill Yankee attended the Lutheran Church as a child in Wheeling, West Virginia, and was confirmed at the age of 13. He rejected Christianity as improbable at age 18. Bill Yankee earned his undergraduate degree in mathematics from Alaska Methodist University in 1965. In the mid-1970s, Bill was an active member of All Souls in Shreve City when we were on the other side of town. In the 1980s, he earned a master's degree in zoology at Louisiana Tech University. He earned a Ph.D. in physiology from Clemson University in 1989. He taught biology courses at Clemson University, Erskine College, and Limestone College, including human anatomy and physiology, vertebrate zoology, histology, genetics, ecology, and general biology. Prior to graduate study in biology, Dr. Yankee was for 20 years an officer in the United States Air Force and piloted a variety of aircraft. As Major Yankee, he completed two combat tours in Vietnam and Laos as a forward air controller and was awarded the Purple Heart, the Vietnam Cross of Gallantry, two distinguished flying crosses, and 19 air medals, among others. Uh, when a Vietnam veteran says, among others, that probably means a stack of medals about this much longer than what they tell you about. 
Now let's talk about Jen for a second. Jen Henderson, Jennifer Henderson, Jennifer Yankee now, was raised in a culturally Christian household. From age 10, she attended the Unitarian Universalist Church of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. In 1996, at age 21, she became a born-again Christian and joined the InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Pomona College. She earned her undergraduate degree in psychology from Pomona College in Claremont, California in 1997. She worked for a year at a home for neglected and abused boys. She then worked at a Mennonite-run psychiatric hospital with adults for four years. Jen and Bill met in 2003 at the Ogilvy Institute's Mountain Nature Camp, a nature study camp for adults. Jen began to question her faith in 2004 and has since become a staunch non-theist. In 2005, Jen began an associate degree in nursing at Panola College in Carthage, Texas. She graduated magna cum laude from the program in May 2007, obviously at the top of her class. In July, she took and passed her state nursing boards and earned the title of registered nurse. She plans to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. She and Bill were married in December of 2005. The talk today will detail the view that terrorism and the war on terrorism is called by religious beliefs. Bill and Jen are convinced that religious fundamentalism of all stripes is the basis for acts of terrorism all over the world. Muslims and Christians fear each other's motives. Christians see Muslims as using terrorism to achieve a caliphate, and Muslims see the Iraq war as a crusade to establish a Christian democracy in the Middle East. Christians cite the Bible and Muslims cite the Koran. In an age of nuclear weapons, martyrdom can be cataclysmic. Two things are at the heart of the problem. One, the belief, the real belief that heaven awaits martyrs, and in Islam that a martyr can take 70 members of his or her family along to heaven. And two, the respect for religious beliefs and the unwillingness to assign responsibility to a religious basis for martyrs' actions. We have all learned that religion is to be respected and not criticized. Bill and Jen ask the question, why? Bill and Jen will talk about Islam and the reasons for the anti-science and anti-Western view that categorizes non-Muslims as infidels who are to be exterminated. This is a clear attempt to return culture to the Middle Ages with establishment of a caliphate. Now, I do want to remind you, as you notice in your program, a talkback will follow. At the end of the service, there will be a postlude, and then there will be no more than a 10-minute break for you to uh, have a restroom break, water, whatever, and if you're interested in coming back and discussing directly one-to-one -one with them the things they've talked about, please come back for a talkback session. I am, for one, excited about this because when I first joined the Unitarian Church, uh, that was the norm. There was always a talkback session after every service. 
So thank you for putting up with uh, my diatribe there, but I thought it was essential for you to get to know them a little bit, and they asked me to give that introduction to the sermon. Enjoy. Thank you, uh, Chester, and good morning, everybody. Nice to see friends here to give a little comfort. Um, we're running a little behind, so we decided we would speak a little faster than we did in this microphone of the tape recorder when we practiced this talk two or three times. So uh, if we go a little fast, I hope you'll bear with us. I'm getting pulled toward the microphone. I'm hoping that Jen's youth enthusiasm and wit will counterbalance my notorious monotonous monotone, but I'll do the best I can. Glasses. Glasses. Thank you. That's why I'm here. She, she printed number 16 type, so I really don't need my glasses. Okay. The Age of Enlightenment. The Age of Enlightenment was an 18th century movement in European and American philosophy. It advocated reason as a primary basis of authority. America's founding fathers were heavily influenced by Enlightenment-era ideas, particularly deism. Deism is simply a belief in a god, as contrasted with theism, which is the belief that there is a god who answers prayers and provides an afterlife. Europeans were tired of centuries of religious wars. After peace had been restored, the Enlightenment values replaced religious dogma with a concept that God and nature are one. This idea became central in the Enlightenment from Newton to Jefferson. According to natural law, God did not rule arbitrarily, but through natural laws that he enacted on earth. If there are natural laws, then there are natural rights. These concepts led to the Bill of Rights. The Enlightenment values... He's stealing my line. <laughs> <coughs> The Enlightenment values included the centrality of freedom, democracy, and reason as the primary values of society. These are also primary values of Unitarian Universalism. The UU tenets, which most of us are familiar with, are the inherent worth and dignity of every person, justice, equity, and compassion in human relations, acceptance of one another and encouragement to spiritual growth in our congregations, a free and responsible search for truth and meaning, the right of conscience and the use of the democratic process within our congregation and in society at large, the goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, and respect for the interdependent web of all existence of which we are a part. These basic underpinnings of Unitarian Universalism encompass the attempt to understand the human condition, but UUs do not uncritically accept conventional wisdom or dogma. Please note that in those tenets there is no mention of God or religion per se. In this, the UU tenets are similar to the secular humanist tenets. In brief, the secular humanist declaration says secular humanists are committed to free inquiry and to the separation of church and state. They believe in the ideal of freedom in all aspects of life. They believe ethics and morals should be based on critical intelligence, that moral development should be cultivated in children and young adults. They recognize the importance of religious experience 
It is that experience that redirects and gives meaning to human lives. But human, secular humanists deny that these experiences have anything to do with the supernatural. Secular humanists are committed to use of rational methods of inquiry, logic, and evidence in developing knowledge and testing claims to truth. The scientific method, though imperfect, imperfect is the most reliable way of understanding the world. Evolution is a reality, and education should be the essential method of building humane, free, and democratic societies. Notice in all three of those, there is no God who answers prayer. All three, the Enlightenment, secular humanism, and the UU tenets, there is no God who answers prayers, and there is no mention of an afterlife. We've covered the Enlightenment, Unitarian Universalist basic tenets, and secular humanist tenets because that is the basis for most of the information in our talk today. Uh, the historical and present religious support of violence. Religion supports violence as we can see from our history and our present. Historically, monotheism is rare compared to polytheism. But wars are generally begun by monotheistic religion-based cultures with an active moral god, Christian, Jew, Muslim. Wars are only rarely started by polytheistic cultures, such as Egypt under the pharaohs, and monotheistic cultures are herding cultures with a shepherd and sheep. When 66 agrarian societies were studied and the dependence on herding was high, 92% believed in an active moral creator God, whereas when dependence on herding was low, only 20% had a similar belief. The higher the dependence on herding, the more likely a belief in a shepherd God of the Judeo-Christian model and the God of monotheistic religions is always male. The Bible describes God as a shepherd and the chosen people as a sheep. Islam, one of the strictest of all monotheistic religions, grew to power among the herding people of the Arabian Peninsula, the, nat the pastoral societies in which these religions developed were highly mobile, tightly organized, and often militant. In the Bible, religious strife and wars were common. Throughout the world, war and violence are characterized by religious hatred. Religion is as much a living spring of violence today as it was in the past. Here's a short list of the religious conflicts in the world today. The recent conflicts in Palestine, Jews and Muslims, the Balkans, Orthodox Serbians and Catholic Croatians, and Orthodox Serbians versus Bosnian and Albanian Muslims, Northern Ireland, Protestants versus Catholics, Kashmir, Muslims versus Hindus, the Sudan, Muslims versus Christians and animus, to name a few. There are many more. Sorokin found that over the past 1,000-plus years, 11 European countries <clears throat> were at war 47% of the time. Most conquests were genocidal and resulted in genetic increase in the propensity for violence. Religion has always facilitated violence with a promise of heaven. This is an example of gene-cultural coevolution. Is one example. After the conquest of the Midianites, Moses gave instructions identical in result to the aggression and genetic usurpation by male langur monkeys. 
He said, now kill every male dependent and kill every woman who has had intercourse with a man, but spare for yourselves every woman among them who has not had intercourse. All evil is not exclusively from religion, but religious texts, the Bible, Koran, Torah, promote violence, and religious violence often accompanies secular violence. The most obvious example today is militant Islam in the Middle East. Any reading of the Koran justifies the violence in the Middle East, the suicide bombings, 9-11, the murder, murder of journalists in Holland, the riots over 12 cartoons of Muhammad, and the sectarian violence in Iraq. As man believes, so he will act. Every belief is a potential action, and people who really believe the Koran act upon its commands. Open the Koran, which states that it is perfect in its every syllable, and simply read it with the eyes of faith. You will see how little compassion need be wasted on those whom God himself is in the process of mocking, cursing, shaming, punishing, scourging, judging, burning, annihilating, not forgiving, and not reprieving. For instance... God's curse be upon the infidels, chapter 2, verse 89. God is the enemy of the unbelievers, chapter 2, verse 98. The unbelievers are like beasts, deaf, dumb, and blind. They understand nothing, chapter 2, verse 172. Slay them wherever you find them. Idolatry is worse than carnage, chapter 2, verse 190. Those that deny our revelation we will burn in fire. No sooner will their skins be consumed than we shall give them other skins so that they may truly taste the scourge. God is mighty and wise. Chapter 4, verses 55 and 56. And a final example. Believers, make war on the infidels who dwell around you. Chapter 9, verse 123. These are only a few examples of many in the Quran. Any mention of love and forgiveness in the Quran is confined exclusively to believers. The only way out of this religious quagmire is a reformation of Islam, and that does not seem as if it will happen anytime soon. Tolerating the practices of militant Islam is no solution, and the concept of tolerance that modern and liberal religious folks espouse, modern and liberal Christians espouse, only facilitates fundamentalist and militant fanatics. Thomas Paine said that toleration is not the opposite of intoleration, but is the counterfeit of it. Both are despotisms. One assumes the right of withholding liberty of conscience, the other of granting it. The Western tradition of respecting a person's religion as a private matter is a luxury we cannot afford. We will go into this matter further a little later on. Whereas the Koran is consistent and uniform in its commands about infidels, the Bible is a smorgasbord of conflicting and contradictory statements. We're all familiar with Jesus' sayings about peace. Blessed are the peacemakers, and peace I give unto you. Turn the other cheek and the golden rule. But Jesus also says in Matthew 
Do not think that I came to bring peace upon the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And in Luke 12:49, he said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. In Matthew 5:17, Jesus said, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. This law includes stoning adulteresses and heretics, killing your son who speaks against you, beating your children with sticks when they disobey, and the acceptableness of selling your daughter into sexual slavery. Also, the law mandates death as the punishment for the violation of any of the Ten Commandments. It's not only Catholic history that is replete with violence. I'm sure we're all familiar with the Crusades and the Inquisition. But the Reformation did little to change Christian behavior. Many great Christians of history, both Catholic and Protestant, have espoused violence. St. Augustine wanted to torture heretics. Aquinas wanted to kill heretics. And Luther and Calvin wanted to murder heretics, apostates, Jews, and witches. These beliefs led directly to the Salem Witch Trials. And the trend in America today is, unfortunately, back towards Christian fundamentalism, the bombings of gay bars, abortion clinics, and the murders of doctors who perform abortions. Randall Terry, head of Operation Rescue, an anti-abortion group, has this to say to Christians in America. I want you to let a wave of intolerance wash over you. I want you to let a wave of hatred wash over you. Yes, hate is good. Our goal is a Christian nation. We have a biblical duty. We are called by God to conquer this country. We don't want equal time. We don't want pluralism. We want theocracy. Now, folks, if religious fundamentalists ruled this country, we would be the first to go. And they know where to find us, right here on Sunday morning. Two weeks ago, John Hodges gave a wonderful talk about what positive liberal Christians in modern America believe relative to morality and separation of church and state. We agree with what he said, but the same moral principles that he stated are found in other modern moral systems throughout the world. Moral principles don't come from God and religion. They are universal. The concessions that have made faith in our political discourse have prevented us from even speaking about, much less uprooting, the most prolific source of violence in our history, religion. It's not only Christianity and Islam, but anywhere people consider non-believers a threat to their faith. Consider this scene. Mothers were skewered on swords as their children watched. Young women were stripped and raped in broad daylight, then set on fire. A pregnant woman's belly was slit open and her fetus raised skyward on the tip of a sword, then tossed into one of the fires that raged across the city. This is not an account of the Middle Ages, nor is it an account from Middle Earth. This is our world. The above passage describes the violence that erupted between Hindus and Muslims in India in the year 2002. The only difference between these groups consists of what they believe about God. 
To be sure, hatred is an eminently human emotion, and it is obvious that many people, not just religious extremists, feel it. But faith is still the mother of hatred wherever people define their moral identities in religious terms. Would any of these horrible examples have happened if Jainism was the religion? Jain patriarch Mahavira said, Do not injure, abuse, oppress, enslave, insult, torment, torture, or kill any creature or living being. Would any of these... <clears throat> Would any of these horrible examples have happened if people did not have an irrational religious basis for the hatred and a belief in an afterlife in paradise? Have you ever heard of atrocities committed by atheists or those with a rational evidence-based worldview? There aren't any. There are murderous despots who are not, quote, religious, but who develop a cult of personality that has the characteristics of religion, irrational beliefs that have no logical evidence. Kim Il-sung makes the grass grow. So, without religion, doesn't morality end? Some folks say that we can't be good without God. Well, the concept of morality, the concept of morality can change over time. Whales have been beaching themselves for millions of years, and today it is considered moral to make heroic attempts to aid their return to the open ocean. But until recently, the reaction was, oh boy, free food. So, first of all, we must specify that we're talking about democratic and Western morals. If religious faith is the only real basis for morality, as many Americans believe, then atheists should be less moral than believers. In fact, atheists should be utterly immoral. Are they? Do members of atheist organizations in the U.S. commit more than their fair share of violent crimes? Do the members of the National Academy of Sciences, 93% of whom do not accept the idea of God, do these people lie, cheat, and steal with abandon? We can be reasonably confident that these groups are at least as well-behaved as the general population. When was the last atheist riot? Is there a newspaper anywhere on earth that would hesitate to print cartoons about atheism for fear that its editors would be kidnapped and killed in reprisal? As an example of the lack of connection between religion and morality, the United States. The United States is unique among wealthy democracies in its level of religious adherence. It is also uniquely, it is also uniquely beleaguered by high rates of homicide, abortion, teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, and infant mortality. Southern and Midwestern states, characterized by the highest levels of religious literalism, are especially plagued by the above indicators of social dysfunction, while the comparatively secular states of the Northeast are not. While political party affiliation in the U.S. is not a perfect indicator of religiosity, it's no secret that the red states are primarily red because of the political influence of conservative Christians. If there were a strong correlation between Christian conservatism and societal health, we might expect to see some sign of it in red state America. We don't. Of the 25 states with the lowest rates of violent crime, 62% are in blue states, 38% are in red states. 
Of the 25 most dangerous cities, 76% are in red states. In fact, three of the five most dangerous cities in the U.S. are in the pious state of Texas. Not only is there no evidence that a lack of religiosity leads to moral behavior, excuse me, let me start that sentence over. Not only is there no evidence that a lack of religiosity leads to less moral behavior, a number of studies actually support the opposite conclusion. In 1934, a negative correlation was found between acceptance of religious beliefs and three different measures of honesty. As religiosity increased, honesty decreased. In 1969, a study found no difference in the self-reported likelihood to commit crimes between children who attend church regularly and those who did not. Finally, a comprehensive survey of correlational studies on the psychology of religion revealed that there's a consistent positive correlation between religious affiliation, church attendance, doctrinal orthodoxy, the rated importance of religion, and so on, with ethnocentrism, authoritarianism, dogmatism, social distance, rigidity, intolerance of ambiguity, and specific forms of prejudice, especially against Jews and blacks. The conclusion is clear. Not only does religion not necessarily make one more moral, it can lead to greater intolerance, racism, sexism, and the erosion of other values cherished in a free and democratic society. The central tenet of every religious tradition is that all others are mere repositories of error or dangerously incomplete. Frequently, the concept that religious traditions have is to educate people, convert them, or kill them. Intolerance is thus intrinsic to every creed. Once a person believes, really believes, that certain ideas can lead to eternal happiness or to its antithesis, he can't tolerate the possibility that the people he loves might be led astray by unbelievers. Certainty about the next life is simply incompatible with tolerance in this one. So what would take the place of religion if it were eliminated from our culture? A morality based on science and reason and law. We need a morality that is religious dogma free based on science and the better side of human reality. Love, respect, kindness, patience, willingness to discuss, debate, and work things out in the best interests of society. This morality was espoused by the founding fathers of this nation. The Bill of Rights was created by deists with Enlightenment values, not by Christians. There was great opposition to the Bill of Rights by the religious leaders of the time. This morality is also espoused by European democracies. Norway, Iceland, Australia, Canada, Sweden, Switzerland, Belgium, Japan, and the Netherlands, Denmark, and the United Kingdom are among the least religious societies on earth. They are also the healthiest, as indicated by life expectancy, adult literacy, per capita income, educational attainment, gender equality, homicide rate, etc. Largely, um, the homicide rate uh, in Western Europe is largely the product of immigration 
70% of the inmates in France's jails are Muslim immigrants. <clears throat> the Muslims of Western Europe are generally not atheists. Conversely, the 50 nations now rank lowest in terms of the United Nations Human Development Index are unwaveringly Christian. In addition to establishing morality based on science and religion and law, the, the taboo of public criticism of religion has to be broken. These two things must occur together. Imagine a world in which generations of humans come to believe that certain films were made by God, a future in which millions of our descendants murder each other over rival interpretations of Star Wars. This world would be the modern equivalent of Bible stories. We would consider this simply a fantasy. Why would we believe similar things written by men in a society in which the wheelbarrow would be an engineering marvel? The indoctrination of young children into particular dogma has to be ended. If religious ideas were only presented to adults, the number of fanatics and martyrs would be greatly reduced. The ability of early indoctrination to produce magical thinking has resulted in 50% of Americans believing the earth is 6,000 years old, which incidentally is 1,000 years after the Sumerians invented glue and beer. <laughs> we simply cannot allow the wholesale teaching of dangerous fantasies to our children. A modern morality that incorporates science and current knowledge should include what is agreed to be the case by 80% of biologists, that religion is a socio-biological product and that it obviously served as a cohesive force in early human history and as an explanation of mysteries in antiquity. But now that we have modern scientific explanations, many traditional practices, beliefs, and taboos are harmful and divisive. Martyrdom was beneficial in a small group facing attacks by wild animals and hostile humans. But martyrdom in an age of nuclear weapons and biochemical agents is catastrophic. It's time we realize that we can fill our lives with love, compassion, ecstasy, and awe without religion and its dogma. Nor must we renounce all forms of spirituality and mysticism to be on good terms with reason. The secular humanist declaration states, quote, morality that is not God-based need not be antisocial or subjective, nor need it lead to the breakdown of moral standards. Almost did it again. Uh -huh. <laughs> A non-religious spirituality is possible. For example, meditation. A vast literature on meditation suggests that negative social emotions, such as hatred, envy, and spite, both proceed from and ramify our dualistic perception of the world. Emotions such as love and compassion, on the other hand, seem to make our minds very pliable in meditative terms, and it is increasingly easy to concentrate under their influences. It also seems a matter of common sense that the more the feeling of selfhood is relaxed, the less those states that are predicated upon it will rise, states like fear and anger. 
Scientists are making their first attempts to claim to test claims of this sort, but every experienced meditator has tested them already. Mysticism, mysticism can be objective in that it need not be contaminated by dogma. Mysticism is a rational enterprise. Religion is not. The mystic has recognized something about the nature of consciousness prior to thought, and this recognition can be discussed rationally. The mystery of this world can be analyzed with concepts. This is science, like math or physics. Or it can be experienced free of concepts. This is mysticism, like appreciating the beauty of art and music. Religion is nothing more than bad concepts held in the place of good ones for all time. It is the denial of the vastitude of human ignorance. While spiritual experience is clearly a natural propensity of the human mind, we need not believe things on insufficient evidence to experience spiritual fulfillment. Clearly, it must be possible to bring reason, spirituality, and ethics together in our thinking about the world. This would be the beginning of a rational approach to our deepest personal concerns. It would also be the end of dogmatic religious faith. We have time for a couple of quotes. Uh, we have a whole list of them. Anybody that's interested later, be happy to um, show you our list of quotes and famous non-believers and what they had to say. Everybody from Thomas Jefferson to Einstein, etc. First quote, if man continues in the direction of enlightenment, his religious practice may, in the end, attain some semblance of human decency. Mark Twain. One should accept the truth from whatever source it proceeds. Moses Maimonides, 12th century. Let the human mind loose. It must be loose. Superstition and dogmatism cannot confine it. John Quincy Adams, 1816. The world is my country. All mankind are my brethren. And to do good is my religion. Thomas Paine. Who are we? The answer to this question is not only one of the tasks, but the task of science. Erwin Schrodinger, Science and Humanism. This quote is from a treaty with Tripoli, passed unanimously by the U.S. Senate and signed by President John Adams in 1797. The government of the United States is not, in any sense, founded on the Christian religion. Abraham Lincoln said that the Bible is not my book, nor Christianity my profession. I could never give assent to the long, complicated statements of Christian dogma. Einstein said, I do not believe in a personal God, and I have never denied this, but have expressed it clearly. If something is in me which can be called religion, then it is the unbounded admiration for the structure of the world so far as our science can reveal it. Why don't you do that? Post-link thing and so on. Oh. Call this done.